One of our most popular articles of 2018 under the category of executive guides was an article that we wrote called Enterprise Adoption of Artificial Intelligence. This was based in part on everything that I'd learned from about 2016 towards the end of 2018 in terms of the real challenges and hurdles for overcoming AI adoption, uh, as well as what made it work for the companies that actually got it off the ground. Lots of challenges here in terms of talent, in terms of data, and there's a few ways that that bridge can be gapped. On the one hand, training existing business executives to learn machine learning skills is one way of skinning the cat. Another way is to make the technology more accessible to subject matter experts who don't have a background in machine learning. And that's indeed the point of AutoML. The concept of AutoML is the idea that technology could be used to automate the process of applying machine learning to business problems. So cleaning data, training algorithms, and helping to sort of produce the right results from those algorithms, that some of the nuance and the detail and the current technological wizardry that goes into the development and engineering of these systems could be automated. And that tech itself, AI itself, could be used to help people apply AI. This is a, broadly the concept of AutoML. We ask for some detail on this topic from someone who knows a lot about it. Yuen Huang is the CEO and founder of a company called R2.ai. They're actually based in China. Yuen has spent quite some time in the Bay Area working for big firms like SAP and Teradata uh, and is now, again, co-founder of R2.ai, a company that's applying AutoML in spaces like insurance and financial services and healthcare. Uh, and he speaks on what AutoML is and where and how it might make a difference in business, essentially walking people through the concept of how AI will make itself more accessible to subject matter experts. Those of you who don't code in Python on the weekend, which, and I know my audience quite well, is not most of you, certainly not me, will, I think, be interested in, in getting a sense for how AI is going to become more accessible in the months and in the years ahead as the technology sort of allows people with, again, subject matter expertise to, to build AI systems. At the very end of the interview, we touch a little bit on the AI ecosystem in China. We're doing a big series on AI in China. We wrote an article on AI in India, sort of the, the overall ecosystem, kind of making recommendations for the government there as to sort of where to encourage development in the AI ecosystem in India, uh, was extremely popular. And we're aiming to do something quite similar in, in China. And so we're asking for people's perspective on current AI developments in China. And Ewan was kind enough to share some of his thoughts as to what the strengths and relative weaknesses are of the AI ecosystem in China itself. So those of you interested in the overseas perspective, I think there's more and more attention on kind of U.S.-China comparisons, and I think it's interesting to speak with people who've really seen both sides of the pond, and Ewan certainly fits the bill there as well. So without further ado, we're going to speak with Ewan here with R2.ai. I'm Dan Fagella. You're listening to AI in Industry. Let's go ahead and dive right in. So, Ewan, I wanted to kick us off with just the topic of auto ML. There's rustles in the breeze around auto ML. I think it all started maybe 18 months ago when I was in the Bay Area. People started hearing of this. I think in the enterprise world, it's still not very well understood. When you have to explain the concept of auto ML and its value to business folks who don't have a technical background, how do you do that? How do you explain the topic? Okay, I guess there are like multiple levels of auto ML. Uh, when we talk about, you know, uh, machine learning, I guess the first level is certainly by, you know, uh, implied by the name. So it does the machine learning, you know, model development automatically. Okay, so that's the first level. You automate the machine learning model development process. So that's the first level. I guess okay. the second level is the concept of using AI to create AI. 
So that concept means besides automation, that technology can also learn or self-evolving by itself. You know, more work it does, smarter and faster it becomes. So I'll say that's two, two levels of auto, yeah. auto uh, machine learning that, that I guess uh, that's from you know, R2 perspective, that's how we understand it. Got it. Yeah. And maybe we can talk about the first level just conceptually. So you had said kind of automated the, automating the process of, of sort of setting up the algorithm here. I mean, thinking about this anecdotally, being someone who doesn't technically build you know, algorithms for a living, I would imagine that we're talking about maybe feeding in the right data and having a system that can determine the weights and the features that we'd want to leverage to reach our, our objective um, and kind of do that on its own rather than having a human kind of calculate and weight and tweak and adjust things, uh, maybe having a system that can run a lot of experiments and, and sort of figure out what it can optimize and settle in on, on an algorithm itself. I may be quite misguided here because I'm kind of grasping at, at the concept from the outside. Let me know how you explain kind of that level one idea. Yeah, I think you're, you're right on the spot. But basically, the goal of the AutoML is to make the machine learning model development and operation easier, quicker, better, and cheaper. So that's the goal that we're trying to achieve. So then in terms of how it works, so basically, you know, it's really aimed to serve both the AI or machine experts and non-machine uh, learning experts. So if you provide the right data set, the system will basically walk you through the entire model building process. You don't need to have very detailed or sophisticated knowledge on machine learning. You provide the data, you define the problem, and the system will basically go through the entire uh, model building lifecycle, starting from checking the data quality automatically and the fixing any issues automatically, and do the feature engineering, and select the best learning algorithm that matches your data, and fine-tune the model, and then recommend the model, the results to you. So that's the entire process it walks through. That's a lot for a system to do. And, and I imagine this is quite challenging, and we're, we're probably not at plug-and-play your AI tomorrow level right now, but it sounds like the full concept of AutoML is pretty ambitious. Like you said, it's all the way from data to kind of what comes out of the system on the other end. I would imagine, and you and maybe you could clarify, AutoML, I would guess, initially is going to be worked on in reasonably specific domains. Like, for example, I would imagine maybe certain kind of financial data where the variance of the formats of the data and the various of, of maybe the timing of, of the data or cleanliness or harmonization of the data sources or whatever is going to vary, but within some kind of bounds, as opposed to maybe IoT and manufacturing where we've got a bajillion sensors that mean all kinds of wacky, wild, different things. And it might be much harder to determine what's quote unquote clean in, in an environment like that versus finance data where we're looking at numbers. I could be wrong though. You know, when it comes to automating data cleaning, where is that possible today? I mean, it's clearly AutoML is not is not informing all processes quite yet. Although you know, I'm sure it's making progress. Where is that sort of low hanging fruit for that data part of the system here? Yeah, I think you're partially correct. So there is a boundary in terms of what the AutoML is capable of doing today. I guess the, the assumption it makes is that data that's fed, you know, uh, to the system are good are uh, not not garbage. Okay, so that's yeah. that's the assumption that it okay. makes, first of all. And the second thing is, there are certain, you know, business logic related stuff. The machine learning at the AutoML, you know, in terms of some of the feature engineering, how you present 
So that's the part that still probably requires certain human uh, intervention. But other than those, the AutoML is actually capable of handling all types of different data sets for different domains. Because once the data gets into the system, we assume all the business knowledge is already in that data set. Yeah. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. So all the remaining is just machine learning. Got it. Automatically discover the pattern. Cool. Okay. So the place for the human being then is having the savvy and the probably the data science knowledge, but also the subject matter knowledge to understand what features are relevant, what data, what quality means in this context. And to to sort of be the gatekeepers of what we feed to the AutoML system, from there it can do its work. But it obviously can't do the work of pulling the information from the real world. Humans at least have to open the floodgates with the right info, kind of you know to some degree in the right way, so that an AutoML system can can do what it needs to do. You're absolutely correct. So that the person, the user, needs to be more savvy on the business yeah. side than on the data science side. Yeah. Uh, so at yeah. least we're, we're kind of removing one of the roadblock, which is the data science portion. Because yep. uh, we have yep. a lot of uh, savvy business analysts who understands the business pretty well, but lack machine learning capabilities. A hundred percent. We are still in a phase of wizard skills. And uh, there are people like you who, you know, might adequately be referred to as wizards. And then there are, you know, people like our listeners who might have pretty gargantuan salaries, but they don't write in Python. You know, they, they hire people, they fire people, they make decisions, but they don't write in Python. So they've got the business experience, but not this requisite data science knowledge. So, so that's partially the goal here is bridging that gap so that we need less of the hardcore ML knowledge and maybe just a fluency of data, a fluency in what kind of features might matter for a decision. Um, and permit those, those kind of people to make to yeah, to, yeah, yeah, yeah got it. Um, they don't need to learn what is, you know, regression, what is, yeah, uh, yeah, true you know, machine. They don't need to learn all these things. The world has its fingers crossed that AutoML is going to pick up. I know folks like yourself and, and other people are kind of cracking away on this. I think the accessibility of AI is, oh man, I mean, it was su- such a big deal to overcome this hurdle because. A lot of the talent hump here in terms of, you know, the, the big disparity between the big tech companies and other firms in terms of the number of AI people they can hire. There's a lot of reasons why this has to happen. And that, I guess, kind of brings me to a second question here. You and I are talking about one very important hurdle to AI adoption in the enterprise, and that would be sort of requisite machine learning knowledge on the individual teams that might yes. use these tools. So you can't expect at, let's say, a company that manufactures carpet or a company that, I don't know, uh, maybe they do physical storage for auto parts or something. It's unlikely that in different departments, you're going to have people with really robust and powerful machine learning talent in in those companies. Even if they're public companies, you know, you may literally have, I mean, you have people with a statistics background, but you may literally have no machine learning expertise whatsoever. And so that's a barrier. Let me ask you this. What are some of the other kind of biggest hurdles in your mind as to what is keeping AI from becoming a normal fluid part of sort of the the operations of enterprise today? What what are the other big barriers that jump out to you as you see people trying to to use these tools? Yeah, I think the the biggest barrier that we saw is, you know, I guess there are like different customers with different maturity in their, you know, machine learning adoption cycle. So there are customers who are still at the, the data collection stage, right? There are customers who are still at data consolidation stage. But we are mainly going after the customers who are, you know, already 
past the data consolidation stage are now trying to turn their massive data set into into values. Yeah. So for those customers, basically, you know, the main barrier that we saw, number one, lack of talents, for sure. You know, it's really hard to get, acquire good quality uh, machine learning talents. Uh, very expensive too. Yep, incredible. Uh, the expensive. second thing is time to value, right? It takes very long time for them to develop machine learning models. Totally. Right. And the third is the consistent quality of those models. So, because it's a human and with limited resources and the limited time frame, uh, there's no guarantee that they are able to fully leverage the insights in the data. It's meaning, you know, the, the model they develop may not be the perfect one. Got it. Okay, cool. So this time to value problem, yeah, I think there's a lot of attention on that right now because even the firms that can afford to get a room full of PhDs who really know what they're talking about, if those PhDs don't have kind of connective tissue with subject matter experts and IT people to really breathe life into an AI application, get the right data, access the right people, figure out the problem really well, integrate the solution, then yeah, the turnaround to bringing one of these solutions to life if you're building something in-house or even with a vendor company is a long time. Uh, and it sounds like part of your supposition here is that if we can automate kind of the, the tuning of algorithms, that'll help re reduce some of those time horizons and, and reduce the burden of the tweaking and the testing uh, of the weights on the human side. Yeah, absolutely. So we actually had a, a customer who is an insurance company. They kind of want to basically turn their massive data they have collected over years into really insights and really leverage the, those data points. So they, their traditional way of doing machine learning models takes them three to five months to build one model. But with the AutoML support, uh, a model can be developed in less than three weeks. And a majority of the time of three weeks is spent on actually collecting the data, the right data sets. Yeah, yeah. So that, that kind of gatekeeper role that we talked about, making sure that what we feed to the system is proper and then sort of letting it do what it needs to do. Obviously, insurance is kind of the original big data industry. We cover a tremendous amount of the activity in the AI and insurance intersection. It doesn't surprise me that among some of the early clients here would be people like that. Because these firms, to I guess touch on what you were saying, they've been collecting data for a long time and in fact using statistical methods for a really long time. But they might just not have really heavy-duty ML-talented people in all their departments, right? They might have statistical knowledge and, and reasonably well-organized data, but they, they don't have, I would estimate most big insurance firms don't have, you know, a stacked bench of ML experts in, in most of their departments. Oh, yes. Uh, that's, that's very typical because uh, uh, one of our customers, they actually have a data scientist team of 20-plus people, but among these 20-plus people, only two of them are machine learning experts. So yeah, it's very, very small percentage of that data scientist, scientist team are actually machine learning savvy. Yep, doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, it's, it's tough to bridge that gap. And I think you know, we can bridge the gap by training people with university courses and with, with online courses and you know the swelling popularity in that, but we can also make it so that the technology is more accessible. Last question I wanted to run by you here, Ewan, where we, we did a piece on, on AI in India a number of months ago that became extremely popular on the ecosystem over there. And we're focusing now on sort of what's going on in China. There's a lot of cool companies. We're interviewing people like yourself, as well as the big folks like Tencent and, and people at the bigger firms 
uh, in addition to the startup ecosystem. You were schooled out here quite extensively and then went back to the mother country to get this company off the ground. From your perspective, if I can just just ask, what do you see as kind of the strengths of the AI ecosystem in China now? You've you've been involved, I guess, in both the States and, and over there. When you think about what China maybe has some unique advantages in, in terms of developing AI and in terms of applying it, what are those if you see anything that jumps out at you? I'll see number one certainly is the top-down government support. Oh, okay. Go on, go on. Okay. I've heard only yeah. some people have mentioned this, but I'm, I'm interested in your take. So yeah, why is that helpful? What about that? So there's uh, uh, different policies from the central government all the way down to the local government. They have uh, policies try to attract talents and attract good projects into the, their areas. They do provide you know, some funding support, some taxation benefits to attract uh, those companies. So that's certainly a, a top-down atmosphere that you can feel uh, in China. So that's number one. Uh, number two, definitely more data and uh, less regulation on the data. You know, data is more available uh, to the AI applications. And also more use cases in China because of the population, because of the, the size of the economy and all that stuff. Yeah, uh-huh. you see more use cases. I mean, I would imagine pound for pound, AI has made its way into less industries in, in China than, than, let's say, in the States. I, I'm, not on e- I'm not married to either team, by the way, pretty cosmopolitan guy, to be frank with you. But I know a lot of the Chinese economy is sort of waking up now, right? It's, a, it's either a very poor country with a lot of rich people or a very rich country with a lot of poor people. I've, I've heard people in China, I was just in Shanghai like three weeks ago speaking for the United Nations. And mm. uh, I, I heard a Chinese professor describe it both ways and kind of, kind of chuckle a little bit. Huge growth, obviously, in the last 30 years. I mean, amazing. And everybody can, can see that and admire that. You said more use cases. I'm really interested in, in what you meant by that. Like, do you suspect that because of the population, there will be more unique and novel ways that AI can be applied, or is it just more data? What did you mean when you said use cases? Yeah, I'll see like uh, uh, more populations, and you can see there's like more like new business models are being developed in China, and also in terms of uh, you know the public safety area, you see a lot of uh, AI applications. And that's probably accounts for, I guess, over half of the revenues of the, the AI companies in China, you know, in terms of crime prevention, in terms of the crime solving, in terms of the security support for the companies, residential. That's a big area that you don't see that much in here in the U.S. Huh. Okay, cool. Yeah. And I guess, you know, you again, you mentioned the top-down government support as being important in that. I don't think people understand here in the States how that works. You had said that there's kind of an initiative from on high, and that'll go down to the more local regional governments, and they will all kind of kick into gear. You'd mentioned attracting talent is important, bringing AI-related businesses into their, their regions is important, that there's kind of an imperative to do this kind of development. Does that embolden entrepreneurs like you, or does that just encourage the government maybe to help out with more funding? I mean, where does that hit the ground to, to make a difference? Yeah, I think that's the overall you know, uh, micro-ecosystem in which you, you have more access in terms of the support, you know, resource, yep. uh, potential customer needs, and also a better taxation support, facility support, and all that. So, so that will basically provide you more, you know, uh, incentive in terms of developing new innovations, especially for startups. Right, let me close out, I guess. So this is pretty uh, rich perspective that I think people here will appreciate. 
final little question. You've been in the States as well. Not everybody who is really making moves in, in AI in, in China has as much experience in, in the US. Many do, you know, went to went to school here, but not not all, certainly not for as long as you did. When you think about the strengths of the US ecosystem in terms of where they might be different, is there anywhere where you see sort of the states as potentially having some things going for it, maybe, you know, being farther along in the states, anything that the US kind of has in its court. We mentioned with China there's oh. the top-down support, there's the use cases. What does the U.S. have going for it? Right, yeah, I guess if you look at the AI, so you have to look at the entire AI technology stack. Yeah. Right, so you start from research, you know, the basic AI technology research, right? And then you look at, uh, you know, the data portion because, uh, you know, all the machine learning requires data. Yep. Data is the basis of the, the machine learning. So data collection, data management, data consolidation, that is the AI a development tooling platform, development and operation platform, then it's the AI application. Okay. So if you look at the entire stack, then certainly China is shining at the AI application side. You know, I would say shining is not, you know, I, I'm, I'm not saying that it's much ahead of US in the area, but that's where, you know, the China AI uh, shine, shine, shine. Yeah, that, that's where, that's where they have their strength. Yep. Okay, yeah, but in terms of the all the other area, you know, research and the uh, database, you know, the the big data platform, uh, the AI development operation environment, that's the strength of the U.S. Interesting. Okay. All right. So yeah, yeah. That, that's and also in yeah. terms of the top uh, AI talents. Yep. I'll see. You know, U.S. still ahead of China. Okay, in terms of pound uh, for pound expertise. Yeah, in, in that regard. Yep, in, in that, that regard. regard. Okay, cool. Yeah. Understood. Uh, cool. Well, you and that, that, that's it for time, but I sincerely appreciate you sharing your insights. I think the people tuned in are becoming more and more aware of the innovation in China, and that perspective I think is handy. So thanks so much for being able to take the time and joining us on AI and industry. Well, thank you very much, Dan, for uh, having me. Yeah. So I, I do believe that there is a tremendous opportunity for AI in general, you know, uh, globally, uh, not only in China, not only in U.S. Big time. Uh, yeah. That is the hope, my good man. So thanks again. That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, Most of our podcast listeners get the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. I'm Dan Fagella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week.